0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log Live is brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and their collection of exclusive Star Trek visual reference books and other great titles and gifts waiting for you at herocollector.com books. Use promo code Mission10 at checkout for 10% off all books and graphic novels. So, no new disco, no new Lower Decks, no new Picard. What shall we do? I know what we'll do. It's Monday night at 7 p.m. It's time for Mission Log Live. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Don't tell us that we can
1: only have a live show when there's only new Star Trek on the air. There's so much more to talk about. There are topics to be discussed and shows to be reviewed and cool people for you to meet, just like there is tonight. So later... You're going to meet Glenn Zipper, who is an author and producer, and he's going to chat with all of us to talk about his new book, Devastation Class, as well as some of the documentaries he's worked on. So call in now to talk Trek and to
0: talk NASA and whatever else is on your mind. And you know what to do. You click on the Zoom meeting link. You use the one tap from your smartphone. You use your old fangled phone and you call us at 669-900-6833. You know how it works. Then make sure you put in the meeting code and the password. You'll be talking to Earl. Earl will connect you to us and we'll chat. It'll be a blast. Now, uh, Norman, normally, normally at this time in the show, we would say hello to everybody in the chat. But this is not a normal night. Uh, uh, Earl thinks it's Restream. I think it's Facebook because I know that the Roddenberry account has been having trouble all day long. Um, we are unable to see what people are saying unless you somehow have figured it out on your end because I certainly have not. Oh, I don't nearly have that kind of technical brilliance. That's all on Earl. So okay, all right, yeah, he'll so, get it figured out. All right, so I'm just going to assume right now we'd be saying hi to Chris, we'd be saying hi to Dave, we'd be the, saying hi to Paul, the three and Pauls. Paul, and Paul. All three yes. Pauls would be there. We'd be talking to them. They'd be saying hi to us. It's exactly that kind of camaraderie that we have on Mission Log Live. So to all of you who we can't see but are probably saying hi. Hi, back to you. And, so i like uh, to say hi to
1: Tate, like hi to Dominic, like to say hi to Alan, Alan S. Yes, you know, yeah, Narda. Here, obviously, Narda, yeah. Yeah,
0: so. yeah, so everybody from around the world. Sam, who probably is staying up late, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning in the UK, and I know that you wake up and you watch our show, so welcome, Sam, welcome everybody who's watching now. Or later. So, uh, hey Norman, let's really quickly let everybody know what's happening coming up on Mission Log and Mission Log Live. Now, next week on the live show, presumably me and Norman again. By the way, good to do the show with you again. We haven't done this together in a while. It's been a long time so, getting from there to here. <laughs> yeah, you you went there. Way to go. I did. You know. What? Yeah. Uh, so next week we will welcome back a guest who we uh, expected last week. Uh, we are very happy that Julianne Gross. The voice of the computer on Star Trek Discovery will be with us next Monday. So we will talk to her. We will find out what it's like to, uh, well, truly fill in Majel's uh, footsteps, you know, uh, as the voice of the computer. I think that's so cool. So we'll talk to Julianne. We'll meet her. And then uh, this week on Mission Log Live, uh, sorry, Mission Log, not Mission Log Live, we're kicking off season six of DS9. I mean, we're in it. Can can you believe you've already covered two seasons with us, Norman? That's actually really fast. I, Yeah. Well, then again, you know,
1: we do it one a week, 24 Mm -hmm. to 26 episodes-ish,
0: you know, per season, 52 weeks. The math holds up.
1: That's the power of math, people.
0: <laughs> it is. It is. So kicking off season six with a time to stand. Um, if you haven't checked out our closer of season five, check that out. It's out right now. And uh, we do have a Patreon hangout this Saturday morning at 1030 a.m. Pacific. That's 130 Eastern. And it's whatever it is elsewhere in the world you can figure it out you're all smart people uh, and that's where every tier of our patreon followers who just hang out you know we we chat there's really not a set agenda we just get to uh well for me and norman enjoy our coffee and uh, you talk to us so and enjoy all of them, too. The conversation is fabulous.
1: Yes. It's fabulous it, on those live shows.
0: It's always good. I always look forward to that. So um, we will see you then. Mm-hmm. And uh finally, you know, I've said it before on the show, and I'll just say it again. There is a new podcast from Roddenberry Entertainment. The seven have now become eight. You have a daily show to look forward to now. In addition to daily Star Trek news, now there is Sci-Fi 5, a daily five-minute dose of science fiction history. So, uh, go subscribe. Find out at Apple podcast. Go get the RSS feed. You can get all of that at podcast.roddenberry.com, which is newly redesigned and it is beautiful. So go check out podcasts.roddenberry.com and you can subscribe to all of the uh, shows that are produced by Roddenberry, but especially check out Sci-Fi 5, the newest kid on the block. So, uh, Norman, every week we have our poll questions, last week and this week, no different. Can you tell us what happened last week in our poll? So when
1: Holly and I were going through our our review of season three for Discovery, we found out that I think that more people liked it overall. And judging on on the data from the poll, we had about 200 plus votes. And between loved it and liked it, we had... Loved it at 32%, which is a, you know, it's a a fairly reasonable, very relatable number. Uh, Liked it 40%, which I think is a little bit more realistic. Then we had the dreaded meh, which is 17%. (laughs) Could have been here, could have been there. Considering that as a pay service, people don't really want to get meh. They want to get, you know, in that upper 72%, you know, of loved it or liked it. And didn't like it as 11%. So I don't think that those numbers are, they aren't, uh, Unrealistic. I think those are, are yeah. fairly realistic when it comes to some of the, the newer feelings for these newer incarnations of Star Trek. But, you know, more than 50 percent, more than 60 percent, um, they were a little bit more positive.
0: I feel like, you know, I specifically wanted to break up that poll. How do we feel about the final episode and how do we feel about the season overall? Mm-hmm. I didn't love the final episode. I think there's a, a lot of valid criticism to be made about that final episode. But overall, I liked the season. I liked the direction. I liked the character depth that we got out of the season. So overall, liked it. Um, I just feel like it didn't end as well as it had started and kind of flowed for the previous 12 episodes. Um, And now this week, uh, since we are still kind of thinking about the the wrap-up of Discovery and what comes next, this week, a little uh, little different angle here. So uh, if you would share that with us. Yeah, this week's poll, and this is
1: something that also Holly and I talked about, and wanted to see what the what the listeners were were feeling. What Star Trek series are you anticipating the most? And this is the the newer incarnations of Star Trek, not a repeat or a rebroadcast version of Star Trek. So, we had four categories. Obviously, we have Picard season two. Discovery Season 4, Lower Decks Season 2, and then Strange New Worlds, which will be Season 1. And we've seen the, I believe it is the, the new ad that has Pike and Spock, and Beavis and Butthead following Spock, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well. <laughs> but for uh, uh, Picard Season 2, we had a uh, 24%. 24%. Discovery fair. Season 4, a, uh, an 8% vote. Okay. So it's a little low for now. We'll see yep, how it wraps yep. up next week. Mm-hmm. Lower Deck season 2 20% and I think this is fairly obvious because of the popularity of Anson Mount as Captain Pike and that whole look the 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 pre-TOS if you will, not Enterprise. Yeah. Strange New World comes in at 48%. So almost 50% of the overall votes right now are favoring a brand new show and I have to believe that in some way they're looking for strange new worlds to right certain wrongs. I think that the fandom community has kind of levied against some of these newer seasons.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 first of all, I think it's not surprising that the anticipation is higher for a show that we know the least about just Mm -hmm. because you can sort of, you know, put whatever your desires are into that show. And we got that taste of Spock and Pike and number one, and I'm really hoping for a Dr. Boyce. I'm hoping for Mm -hmm. you know, these characters that we haven't seen. So there's a lot of anticipation around that. Um, and probably, you know, maybe I'm a little bit surprised that it's uh, less of an even split when you factor in Discovery Season 4, Picard, and Lower Decks with, with the others that we have already gotten a taste of. Right. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe Discovery might be a little too fresh in people's memories. And um, maybe I'm not surprised then that uh, Picard Season 2 is the next most anticipated. That that they got their episodes and they feel like, ooh, what's next now that we have the... uh the new Picard in his new body. What adventures await there? And Laris and Zaban. I mean, let's be fair, right? Yeah, so yeah.
1: We have to bring back our, you know, our our Irish Romulan <laughs> Tal <Shiar> agent,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. I do love me
1: some Laris, man.
0: Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I. I mean, from from day one, I was just like, okay, these two, they need their own spinoff show. They need their own spinoff graphic novel, whatever it takes. Like, get get them in more. Please. Uh, by the way, uh, since we are kind of uh, running at about half speed here with our, our connectivity tonight, uh, we do have a special note that over on YouTube, BC and Rhonda saying hi directly to us. So BC, Rhonda, thank you for that. Uh, we're going to monitor the chat over there and uh, you know what to do. You know how to call in, use the Zoom meeting link, use the uh, uh, use the one tap from your smartphone or pick up your phone and call us and let's talk. And what are we going to be talking about? Who are we going to be Talking to well, let's meet him now. His name is Glenn Zipper. He is the producer of Dogs, documentary series from 2018, and The Bond in, in post production right now, both about animals and the bond that animals have with humans. I'm never going to talk about that. He is the producer of Elvis Presley: The Searcher from HBO, so check that out as well. He is the producer of the Netflix documentary Challenger: The Final Flight along with J.J. Abrams, and he is the co-author of Devastation Class, along with uh, Elaine Mangian. I hope I said that correctly. He will correct me. And here he is now, Glenn Zipper. Welcome to Mission Log Live, Glenn. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Great to be here. Did I get Elaine's name right? I meant to ask you know, that. Really okay. It's Manjian. Okay. Mangian. Okay. Good, and both of you Star Trek fans, and both of you uh, have uh, have now teamed up to write this book Devastation Class, which we will definitely get into in a moment. first question though i I was reading a little bit about you, and you went from a career in law to i, I want to know how this decision happened I want to know how the the transition happened, just going like now I'm going to be a film producer, documentary (laughs) producer, totally changed lives. Tell me about that, please.
2: Yeah. I was a a criminal prosecutor in uh, New Jersey in Hudson County, New Jersey. Um, And I uh, came home from work one day and crossed paths with a stray pit bull puppy on the streets of of Jersey city. And that brought me to an animal shelter and never really been in an animal shelter before. Somehow I'd managed to avoid that for most of my life. Um, And, once I was in there, I saw what they were up against, um, and they told me they were going to put this, this puppy to sleep. And I said, this doesn't make any sense to me. There's got to be homes out there. We've got to be able to do something. And then they took me into the back and they showed me floor to ceiling, uh, cages with, uh, every one of them filled with animals, mostly pit bulls and chihuahuas. Um, and, uh, they said, we don't want to put any of them down. Uh, but it's a, it's a math problem. One comes in, one's got to go. And this is essentially self-serving part of the story. I said, don't put any of them to sleep. I'm going to turn in my badge. I'm going to come volunteer here. And my only job is going to be finding homes for these animals. And I started doing that. And after about six months of doing that and helping them start a volunteer program, I had this strange feeling I couldn't recognize. And I thought something was wrong. And I called a few people, called a few doctors. And they said, no, that's what you're feeling. That's happiness. (laughs) And uh, and I said, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, that is unfamiliar to me. Uh, So... (laughs) The one dog that I couldn't get adopted was that first pit bull puppy. Um, So I adopted him and I said, I want to be happy for the rest of my life. What do I really want to do? I want to tell stories. So that dog was named Anthony and Anthony and I got into my truck and we drove from New Jersey to Hollywood. And uh, I was naive and thought that it would be easy and it wasn't. And I got a lot of doors slammed in my face, but eventually uh, one producer, uh, took a chance on me and there was an opening in his documentary department and he taught me how to make documentaries um and i was off to the races
1: as an ex jerseyan I understand the um the the happiness quotient that is part of your <laughs> part of being a Jersey <laughs> um you know Glenn uh that kind of struck you like a thunderbolt and yeah. I know that as as an animal lover and owner myself I understand that there's a connection with an animal, yours or not. It's just, there's something that automatically links your souls together. Is that what happened to you? Were you an animal lover
2: since you've, you know, since growing up? Did you own dogs? I didn't. No, that's the interesting thing. Like I never really had animals. I had some cats. When I was in law school, I had, I had three cats of my own. And I was wondering why I was having such problem dating. And later was pointed out to me being a single guy with three cats, you know, who watched a lot of Star Trek wasn't, all that helpful to my dating prospects, but... You're not you know, helping the stereotype, my friend. No. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but when I, I made the connection with Anthony, um, there was a, a special magic there. It's hard to describe. Um, but, you know, in our lives, as we, as we grow older and become adults and we inject ourselves into the working world, it just seems like every day someone... It's always quid pro quo. Someone wants something from us, Right. And dog was the, Anthony was the first being that I encountered in a long time, probably since childhood, that didn't want anything from me other than to be loved and would have died for me. And it's hard to replicate that feeling and that connection with anything else in the known universe. Um, And that uh, really uh, was a spark that ignited a flame that became a lifelong passion uh, to help animals in need and also to tell stories about animals
0: and you know that well first of all in your bio I, I thought that was uh one of the most adorable and personal parts it said that you stop and pet every dog you see <laughs> that's that, that is an important part of your life um but it, this was also a part of your documentary life and your work so like i said the documentary dogs and then uh the bond which you're working on now some post now or do you have a...
2: actually just getting started? Um, oh, okay, got it. Bond is uh, the Dogs is a series on Netflix, obviously about dogs, but each episode is is about one unique relationship that you follow in real time, uh, and every one of the episodes is like its own movie. Every one of them, with the exception of one, was directed by an Academy Award winner or nominee. Sadly, one was only directed by an Emmy winner. Um, and we're going to be premiering season two of dogs sometime in the next few months. I don't have the date yet, or maybe I do, right. but I'm not about to tell you. And then the bond rather than being about dogs is about our special relationships with animals that were never supposed to be domesticated. Don't get me wrong. It's not tiger King. It's not people keeping, exotic, it's not keeping, it's not exotic animals. People are keeping as pets. They're animals that were never supposed to be domesticated that intersected with human beings in a way that couldn't have been prevented. And then a bond formed similar to the bond you would have with a dog. And we're producing that with Robert Downey Jr. and Susan Downey. Wow. Very
0: cool. All right. So now I I had to know uh, about all of that, about your, your connection to animals and your transition into creative work. And we've got a lot to talk about, uh, NASA and Challenger and Dev Station class. And of course, your Star Trek fandom. And, uh, we're going to bring on our first caller here in a second. Mike, stand by. But I, I want to get the nutshell version, Glenn, your Star Trek fandom. What is your Star Trek story that has gotten you to here?
2: Well, when I was, when I was, Really young, you know, I would watch the uh, the original series reruns of my brother. My brother's six years older than me, and he introduced me to it. And it, my connection to the original uh, Star Trek was more about a connection to the, the the swashbuckling adventure of it all and being lost in those worlds. And also, there's some sort of, I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but there was, and perhaps it's because of how old I was, but there was a slight creepiness to it almost with the, The score and the sound design, it was, it it was foreign. And that's the slight, uh, the slight measure of uncomfortableness I had watching it. Um, that this tiny amount of it that disturbed me in a way also forged a connection for me. Um, and then I grew older. I started to have other interests, sports and dating and things like that. And then I had um as I got older, something really terrible happened. My dad went to jail and um and I was in college at the time and and I was struggling because of that and some other things that um that had manifested in my life and i, I really I just didn't know i mean I, I don't want to say I was suicidal, I wasn't, but i was in a in a dark, really dark place, and just one of those phases in your life where you just don't know how you're going to confront the next day. And a friend of mine came over and he said, "Hey, are, have you been watching The Next Generation?" And I said, "Well, I, I've been in and out. I, I haven't been keeping up." And he said, "Well, there's. Have you seen The Best of Both Worlds?" And and I hadn't seen it yet. And and he had already recorded uh, the the uh, part one and part two had already happened. So I wasn't it wasn't like I had to wait. And mm-hmm. I and it just sucked me in. And, and I loved it so much. And then I started to binge on it. He had recorded some, some, <laughs> so long ago, I, was, I think it was on VHS. <laughs> and the thing about it that most resonated with me is you know, I had grown up in a way where we, my family sort of turned their nose up at rules. Um, and they just did what they needed to do to get by. And if they had to cut corners, if they had to cheat a little bit, if it was for the greater good, it was okay. It was a little bit Kirk-esque for lack of a but crossed with the Sopranos, right? But with the next generation, uh, you know, and the character of Picard and the and the hierarchy of that show, there was an order. And these were people that were loyal to an ideal, they took it seriously, they were adhering to an oath. And that measure of structure and control and doing the right thing and having doing the right thing being its own reward, it just felt safe. And I would literally imagine myself when I couldn't sleep, I would just imagine myself lying in in uh, my own quarters on, on the Enterprise D and just hearing that that sound of the engine running and it felt safe and it sounds so dorky. I know, but there was something about it that they became my family and I didn't have anyone, you know, my dad was, was, you know, sent away. My brother was, you know, in some, another part of the world in school. I didn't have that many friends at the time. And so that, that crew became my my friends and family, not in a weird way, I know, (laughs) but in a way that it was, was just enough to help me get through the night and watch those reruns every night. Believe me, Glenn, everyone who's hearing your story right now knows exactly what
1: you're saying. It's not yeah. dorky. It's not weird. It is, it is part of our culture. Yeah.
2: Please continue. And- yeah, well, it. But it's good to hear that, you know, and, and we yeah. talked for a minute or two before we, We got started, and I was saying that for somehow, despite how much I care about these things, I've created a life for myself where I'm not really surrounded by people who do care about the same things that I do. There's not anyone I can sit down and watch Star Trek with. So when I hear you respond to that and say, Glenn, there's a lot of people out there that feel they know exactly what you're talking about. They feel the exactly the same way."
3: That feels really good.
0: And, And I will tell you this: everybody, everybody. Likes the sound of the Enterprise D warp core as white noise when you're trying to go to sleep. That's just a fact. So um, please feel free to put that on like your home stereo system well, or I, something. I, yeah. I can.
2: I, I have a, like another weird Star Trek intersection in my life. Is in the, over the pandemic, I developed a really horrible case of tinnitus, mm. and I know that William Shatner suffers from it terribly as well. And of course, that's what I've been doing. I've been listening on YouTube. I've been listening to the. To the uh, to that noise, and it's actually helped me quite a bit. That At least tell awesome. us you're not
1: rolling around your home, like trying to avoid photon grenades. You
2: know, yeah, from yeah, a from a gorn that. launcher, not
1: right?
0: That now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's say hi to our first caller tonight, Mike. Mike is joining us, and uh, hey, good to see you. Welcome to the show. And uh, what is on your mind tonight?
3: Great to be here, John and Norm. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, Glenn, really interested uh, in in speaking to you and hearing more about what you have to say. So I'm not learning anything when I'm talking, but I just wanted to point (laughs) out that I do, um, I am part of a small team at a major airline that develops training for our pilots. The Challenger special uh, figures prominently in that next year. Uh, We talk about things like rushing and uh, what we call drift, where Standard operating procedures are disregarded in the interest of speed, convenience, operational pressure—all the things that you spoke about in the documentary uh, we covered. Because we see those same same things creeping into our day-to-day operation, and we cover those. And it's it's very engaging. It gets our pilots very interested in it. And I'd love to hear more and more what you have to say. Um, listening to your Star Trek story, it could have been me speaking. I grew up on Long Island was the only difference. New Jersey, Long Island, older brother watching it. Um, you know, it started as a, uh, as kind of a neat adventure when I was a kid. As I've grown, it has just taught me how to be a better human. Um, last thing I'd like to say is, as John, I reached out to you on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I use this all the time with our people. We are not yeah. doing our jobs if we are so overwhelmed by our beliefs that we cannot accurately assess reality. So thank you for saying that. That uh, that has added a daily reminder to me.
0: Hey, look, I'm just shocked that I got something that coherent out, uh, in an improvised, uh, improvised speech. So I really appreciate you pointing that out. And, uh, I'm, I'm honored and and really touched. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, uh, thank you for transitioning us to really, you know, one of the major topics tonight, which is the, uh, the challenger documentary. Um, Glenn, I, I've just absolutely been riveted by it, uh, as, as a NASA geek from a very young age. My first launch that I ever saw in person was Apollo Soyuz. Uh, I've got two family members who worked for NASA, um, one whose signature is on the moon inside one of the uh, lunar modules. This documentary really spoke to me, as it did to you, Mike, and and as I'm sure it has to a lot of people. Please tell us what led you there, and, um, and I think as part of what led you there, what was the story that you felt like you could tell 30-plus years later that had not been told already and had not been investigated because, you know, truly is one of the most covered events of the 20th century?
2: Yeah, and also, let me start by saying, thank you, Mike, for your your comments. That has uh, really resonated with me. In, in terms of, um, you know, it's a really interesting story about what we thought we could, what story we could tell that hadn't been told before, because that was sort sort of the bar to entry for places like Netflix. Haven't, haven't hasn't the story been told a million times? Aren't there 50 documentaries about this on on the History Channel? And everyone of a certain age thinks they know everything about the challenge or disaster. And so they said know where they were, they remember exactly what happened, they remember what it felt like for them. And then I would I'd always say, all right, well, Well, tell me who the seven astronauts were. And I go, no problem. There's Krista McAuliffe. And then there's, um, there's, um, and they couldn't answer. I said, that's the reason we're going to make this. We're going to make a documentary series that reacquaints you with the astronauts. You've seen that shuttle explode in the sky more times than you can count, but you're desensitized to it. It doesn't mean anything to you. We're going to... Give a voice to the people that were on that vehicle. And we're not going to have you watch it explode in the sky <laughs> 50 times. You're just going to see it once. But when we do get back to it, you're going to know who those astronauts are. You're going to know who those heroes are, and it's going to break your heart. But hopefully you'll take that pain and then you'll pay it forward because it'll be endowed with meaning again. It just won't be a spectacle in the sky. And when you talk to uh, the the family members of the of those heroes and you talk to the people who run Challenger Center, they don't wanna be seen as victims. Uh, they they have a mission to educate and inspire kids for as long as they're breathing. And that was another reason to do it, to bring people into the story, to educate them, to entertain them, not in a morbid way, but to, you, you can't, if the documentary is not entertaining, even if it's tough subject matter, no one's going to watch it. And then hopefully they could take that experience from watching the series and then bring it back into the world and do something positive with it. Even if it's something as simple as supporting going further and deeper into the next frontier. Excellent.
0: And yeah, if people haven't watched it yet, um, that I think truly is one of the greatest takeaways from this documentary is focusing for. Um, a a solid amount of time on the people who are involved in getting to meet their families. I I think a lot of the interview footage you have of Dick Scobie's widow is uh, just fantastic. And it really, it really presents a very human story as opposed to just purely focusing on what went wrong from either, you know, physical and engineering standpoint or from an administrative standpoint, it was about the people Who had families who had lives who had friends and uh so many of their circle were were there pulling for them when this tragedy was played out on this huge stage um and i think that's very well handled in the show um i mike and and glenn both you know uh since mike you you mentioned that this is something that you're using in the show uh or uh, using in your training um There was something that struck me in this series where there's a lot of talk about uh, arrogance uh, leading up to what happened, and and I I sort of – I was watching that wondering – would I feel the same way presented with uh, the the facts of the story kind of dispassionately? Is it arrogance? Is it combined with complacency? Is it, uh, is there a pressure to do the job that also leads to this kind of disaster when it's easy to overlook details? Um, can you, maybe for, you know, both of you, uh, Glenn and Mike, since you're both sort of looking at this from the same angle, Curious what your what your takeaways are. What are the lessons from a story like this? And, and Mike, I'm going to throw that to you first, and then we'll come back to Glenn.
3: Great. Uh, to answer all your question, yes, um, we find complacency and arrogance do kind of go hand in hand. When mm. you think that you're so good um, that you don't have to follow all those steps, every one of those steps provides another layer of redundancy to trap a mistake to to keep you from. Uh, doing something where the risk outweighs, you know, the potential benefit. So if you feel like you don't have to follow those procedures because you're that good, because there is a sort of an arrogant streak, that is a problem. The other problem is that overconfidence. You've done this in the case of, of our job. We do it thousands of times a day. People do it hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of times successfully over the course of their career. So that's what starts to creep in, that 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 complacency and a little bit of arrogance and the fact that as you start to deviate from the standard operating procedure the first time and things work out okay, then you do it again and then it becomes normalized. And it's that normalization of deviation that we really, really have to fight. And that was something that we could really see in this documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just the responsibility that people have to speak up. Um, Really, I'll let Glenn speak to this more, but it was quite powerful when there were engineers that knew something was wrong and didn't speak up. There have been accidents for for the entire age of commercial transportation where somebody in the cockpit knew something was wrong and didn't speak up. We've gotten a lot better about that, but in the days of the airline captain being the king of the cockpit, people were afraid to speak up. We've really done a good job at combating that. So all of these pieces kind of get put together uh, to form uh, to form a puzzle and a picture. But you've got to continue to use all of those pieces and use all those resources. Excuse me, use all those resources that you have in order to conduct a safe flight.
2: Yeah, I think you know a lot of people going into this uh, series are expecting to find a a mustache twirling villain at the center of the story and and there isn't one everyone here was trying to do the right thing everyone was on the, the same mission but something went wrong and in a sense this was the perfect storm people were losing interest in the space shuttle and it was getting harder and harder for them to get funding and keep the program going and to keep their promises And so there was a lot of the idea to send a teacher into space was essentially instigated by a desire to bring excitement to the program again. And there was so much fanfare around it. And there was so much excitement about it that no one wanted to be the person that got in the way of it going off as expected. The world was watching. And inside the uh, inside of NASA, inside of the engineering companies that were contracted to uh, build the component parts. There's a tremendous amount of pressure, and they succumbed to the pressure. Um, everyone sort of grit their teeth and hoped everything would go right. And there were a few people who were pretty sure it wasn't going to go right. And as you're saying, Mike, they, they should have spoken up. And it, most of them, it haunts them to this day that they didn't. Um, But that's the cautionary tale. When, there, when you see that red flag, you're going to need to raise it. Because if we don't do it next time, history will repeat itself.
0: Mike, hey, thank you so much for calling in tonight and uh, sharing your perspective. And uh, I'm glad that it's people like you who are training others with exactly these kinds of thoughts and these sort of deep dives into these issues. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing that with us. And um you should have a show on all of this. Just just putting that out there, okay? Thank you, sir. <laughs> take care, man. Have a good night. All right. Hey, uh Norman, let's uh let's do a little bit of business here. We have Paul standing by. Not going to tell you which Paul, but we have Paul standing by. Uh but let's come back to him after we take care of a little business, okay? Shall we? Uh Let's do it. So, uh, while Mission Log listeners are undoubtedly familiar with all the various collections of model starships gleaned from every corner of the Star Trek universe by Eagle Moss Hero Collector, like those behind me, probably some of those in Mike's collection too, you may not be as familiar with the wide and ever-expanding variety of officially authorized special edition books published by Eagle Moss and available online at the Eagle Moss shop.
1: So fans who pay a visit to the exclusive Star Trek bookshop at com slash books will discover a range of definitive visual guides that go as deep into Star Trek history and canon as any books ever published, each extensively researched and developed by Eagle Moss Hero Collector under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Rob. He is the man, and he is Looks, an expert, he, yeah. He is the yeah. expert. He is the expert. <laughs> Books from the Star Trek Shipyards series present a timeline of almost every ship that has ever appeared in the Star Trek TV shows and movies, from the original series Forward to Discovery and Backwards to Enterprise. Some of these volumes are dedicated exclusively to Starfleet starships, while all others focus on ships from other members of the Federation, including the Vulcans, Andorians, Tellurites, and Bajorans. Books in the Designing Starship series boldly go where few have gone before, deep behind the scenes into the conception, development, and details of the ships from every era. There are even volumes of the comprehensive official Star Trek Grapple novel collection. And for those of you who have collected Eagle Moss books and collected the magazines that come with the ships, you know how good those details really are. They
0: sure are. There is something for every Star Trek fan of every generation, plus, especially for friends of Mission Log Live... Use code MISSION10 at checkout and receive 10% off all books and graphic novels. To browse around the shop, visit herocollector.com slash books and use the promo code MISSION10 at checkout for your 10% discount. So there's still time if you're going to give us a call at 669-900-6833 or click on the Zoom meeting link or use the one tap from your smartphone and uh, we will chat to you as I did with Mike earlier and as we are about to do with Paul. You know Paul. What, John, yeah. You know
4: uh, what? All number one. Left. Here we are. Prime oh, I was
0: going to try and run a contest here
1: and see if <laughs> the, the listeners could figure out which Paul. Do you like a countdown? all the Pauls here.
4: Yeah, right. I didn't. I didn't, uh, have the ability to message here. I found you guys on YouTube and i evidently you have to have some sort of, I don't know. Uh, account or something to log in and I didn't have right. that, so I've been mysteriously here in the background.
0: <laughs> That's fine. Well, welcome to the show, Paul. Glad to see you, as always, Paul Prime. Yeah. And uh, what is on your mind tonight? Well, first
4: of all, I want to shout out to everybody who um, uh, sent condolences for my uh, wife and I. We we had to put down our, our favorite kitty on Facebook and we posted that. Oh, so thank you yeah. to um, my mission log buddies. And then uh, listening to uh, Glenn here talk about the dogs, uh, you know, Uh, same thing with cats. There's a lot of them out there. So, um, but we're going to move on to this. You've given me a reason to go back to Netflix, at least for a trial period, (laughs) because (laughs) I'm a CBS guy, but um, I want to ask Glenn, you know, it didn't strike me. The Challenger disaster really hit me when I was down in Houston one time. I went to the, the Houston Air and Space, or the NASA facility there, that's a museum. And they had this wonderful intro sort of movie that you come into and it talks about the beginning of the space, you know, endeavors into space. And it scurries along through, um, you know, the, the the Apollo is the one I remember the names of. Um, uh, Grissom, Chaffee, and White when they burned up. That was yeah. terrible. I, Apollo One. And that's burned in my head as a kid. But you're right. I don't remember the names of the astronauts. But I tell you, they have this movie that runs and then... It's just builds and builds and builds and, and all these spaceships launch. We go to the moon and then they show the shuttle taking off, taking off, taking off. And all of a sudden there it goes and it explodes and it's just dead quiet. It just, the, it's this, you know, poetic phasing of the the sound and it just stops and you just break into tears. And I'm, I'm curious, have you ever seen that? And, you know, what, what sort of pushed you into doing this? Because this is, thank you for your work and I'm looking forward to seeing it.
2: Well, first of all, um, my condolences as well to you and your wife about your cat. Um, and I agree with you. There's a bond there with cats as well. And I can't break any news just yet, but it's possible that I might be working on something with like cats right now. Um, <laughs> look forward to that. Um, I never, I, I don't think I've seen the film that you're referring to, but you know, I remember like at the beginning when you do watch it, the first scene in it is a recreation of a classroom where teachers wheeling in an old cathode ray TV uh, to a classroom for the kid, kids to watch the launch. And essentially, that's my classroom. And so many kids of my generation have that same experience. They're in their classroom with their friends, with their teachers, and they watch it explode live on television um, because we all wanted to see the teacher go into space. We're going, of course, we had no, we couldn't fathom the idea that there would be a disaster like that. And so that feeling, that that trauma st- stuck with me for over 30 years. And to have an opportunity to tell the story and help exercise that demon, so to speak, and try and leave people with a more hopeful memory coming out of that disaster, as opposed to the explosion being the end point. I, I'll
0: just I, I'll chime in a little bit to say that uh, when that Started. So I didn't know what I was getting into with your documentary, but from the first frame when I started watching episode one, that took me back to exactly that moment. We're probably very close to the same age. And I remember being at school. I wasn't in a classroom, but I was in the library. And we had a TV in there to do exactly the same thing. And a lot of us were watching Absolutely couldn't believe what we were seeing. And for a good, uh, not for long, but for a good several minutes after this happened and after the story was unfolding, I remember talking to other people just saying, like, well, wait, well, well no, that, that couldn't be that bad. There are fail safes. There, there has to be a way that they're okay, that this isn't as bad as it looks. We don't know. what. And of course, that was just dashed soon after. Um, but just seeing the way you opened that with the TV on the cart, I felt like it was 1986 again. And I had all those same feelings uh, while I was watching it. Yeah, an
2: interesting and, and, Even-
0: at the same,
1: and at the same time though,
0: mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Glenn, go ahead.
1: Um <laughs> have a little bit of delay. But uh, at the same time though, John and, and Glenn, that you had this one kind of cornerstone, this touchstone, With the AV cart getting wheeled in, Mm -hmm. because that's how it was for me. You know, it was that nice sunny day. The AV cart gets wheeled in. Teacher plugs it in. Everyone's excited. And then the tragedy happens. But I do remember, like, almost immediately following that up, having conversations with, say, parents or parents' friends. And they go right into that next scene talking about how this was, like, the most, like, culturally significant touchstone since the Kennedy assassination. That's right. And the the juxtaposition with the Kennedy assassination and parents remembering where they were to all of us of that generation that watched the Challenger explode, knowing exactly where we were, it just felt like, oh my gosh, those conversations are so prescient right now. It's amazing. Yeah. So, so exactly. um, I'm sorry, Glenn.
4: You you were going to say something. I want you to go ahead and chime in here. I'm, I'm my mistake. Go ahead.
2: No, all, all I was going to say was that you know, there's that feeling that we all had watching it. Um, that Helm was just talking about where like it is it can't they, they must be able to there must be fail saints there must there must be a way for them to survive this and what's interesting is the folks that were actually there in the grandstand watching it they had the same feeling It was no different for them and when you yeah. watch is if you've ever seen a christmas story um someone who was in that grandstand was peter billingsley who played ralphie in a christmas right. story and we were looking at a photo of the grandstand and we're, we lean in and we is that, could that possibly be Ralphie? And it was. And we reached out to him and we, and uh, he agreed. He, first he was resistant and uh, I don't say resistant because was very friendly, but he was reluctant um, to relive it. Um, but he um, actually came down to the bad robot offices and we interviewed him there and his account, what it was like to be there and watch the explosion uh, firsthand uh, live um, is one of the most powerful things in the documentary.
4: So, are are we going to see a DVD release on this? I'm one of those old guys who gets DVDs. <laughs> it's
2: funny, you no, know, Netflix doesn't ever release anything on DVD. And the the reason it's funny is when when it was done, but before it premiered, we had to show it to the family. Of course, we wanted them to see it. Mm. No one else saw it. And you know they're a, a little bit older, and a lot of them wanted DVDs. <laughs> I'm sure, they did. <laughs> we, had to, we had to explain to them that Netflix doesn't do DVDs. But we the were, irony of that is is palpable. Yeah, right, I know. Right? <laughs> right. But Netflix was kind enough to give them uh, free accounts for for a minute, and they they got to watch the watch the show that way.
4: So um, let's let's move forward then. Okay, so you had this you know traumatic experience. How much of a a um a, re, a renew of that kind of thing when we watched the opposite happen when the when the shuttle was coming home and and just disappeared i i had a friend who worked on that mm-hmm. shuttle the one that came in and just disappeared from existence right and and they mm-hmm. couldn't sleep for a while um because of knowing the potential of that happening on its way up and then it just burns up on the way home how did that hit you did you have the same was it revisited kind of feelings or
2: oh, yeah i mean you know when you experience a trauma like the Challenger disaster, there are, are going to be things that trigger you if they're even in the same neighborhood of something that devastating. The difference was there was so much fanfare around Challenger, and there was so much celebration, so much joy, that it went from being the highest of highs to the lowest of lows instantaneously. Whereas with Columbia, the shell disintegrated on reentry, the Shuttle launches and returns have become defunctory again. No one was paying attention. It, when you watch the series, you'll see we actually have Jerry Seinfeld, the poet Jerry Seinfeld, talking about how everybody's bored with the space shuttle. This was before the Challenger disaster, and so no one was really even waiting for Columbia to return. Nobody was, nobody was, and there wasn't Twitter. So it just sort of just, it's it slowly bled out that it happened, and you saw it on the nightly news but also it looked like a meteor shower it wasn't the same spectacle either so of course it was painful of course it was terribly sad but it was when you juxtapose it to challenger it's it's a very different experience yeah
0: hey uh paul anything else on your mind tonight uh, if not we will uh, we will say good night and uh just, uh,
4: I want to thank you and Norman. Every time I listen to the Patreon feed, I feel like you're down in the room and you guys talking to each other always is a, is a great, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it feels like I'm at a convention and, um, Glenn, it's a pleasure meeting you and look forward to watching this. And gentlemen, have a great evening.
1: Well, Paul, but we are there. <laughs> you know, just, yeah but i can't talk to you in real time
4: i had to go back and watch the episode the uh where are we at now oh season, season six, six. Episode one. six yeah, one yeah. you're on two now and i watched that last night so i'm ahead of you now finally
0: excellent <laughs> all right well and we'll hope, see you saturday I morning have, i hope one quick yeah. thing yeah
4: see if you can talk to rod all mm-hmm. right at the when you're done because you said such pressing things about, um, particularly Norman, about the relationship between Ducat and uh, Kira. I would, there's a huge value, huge value for you two and for everybody involved to watch the documentary on DS9 immediately when you're done with this season. I mean, when you're done with, with DS9, move into, you know, do a special one of these and watch oh, yeah. what we left behind because. The, oh Norman, you're so ahead of yourself. You you hit some great points there the other day.
1: <laughs> well, full disclosure. Um, ever since I was I was going to watch it, you know, what you leave behind. I I kickstarted, you know, I got my DVD, all of that, and I was about to unwrap it and watch it when I got a phone call from John <laughs> or a text message saying, like, Hey, would you like to, you know, would you like to try out for Mission Log? And when we started doing it, when I started doing Deep Space Nine and really looking at it from a um, you know more of a ground level, I didn't. I, mm. I put that to the side. I'm like, I'm going to watch this. Wait when I'm till done. you see it. Wait need, till
4: you see it. I need and to you do see it how good you have been. Yeah. So, gentlemen, cheers.
0: Take care. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Have a great night, Paul. Right. Our best to the show. Yep. Um. All right. So, Glenn, uh, you know, I didn't mean to steer the entire conversation tonight to uh, Challenger, although, uh, again, I'll recommend to our audience that it, it, it is absolutely fantastic. It is such a well-made documentary. Incredible interviews, historic and new in there, so I do want anybody who has not checked it out, please do so. Go to Netflix. Um, be like Paul. You know, re-up your membership. <laughs> go check it or Get the freebie and go watch it, because it is definitely worth it. But, we also want to talk to you about a uh, another current project, a, a relatively newer project, and that is your novel Devastation class. And uh, give us give us a lowdown. I, I got a couple of questions about it here, but I want you to give us the uh, the nutshell version, what our audience needs to know.
2: You well, know, I've been so many interviews and talk about it so much, I'm still terrible at, at, at giving. <laughs> about it. But what I like to say, you know obviously it's deeply inspired by my love for Star Trek. Uh, but uh, the one of the other important inspirations is a movie from 1983 called Taps. And Taps oh, sure. is a movie that uh, at the time had a bunch of unknown actors. And these unknown actors later became Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, Timothy Hutton. Timothy Timoth-
1: Hutton, George C. Scott. Yeah. Sure.
2: yeah, Giancarlo Esposito, Gus Frank, is in it as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a story of these military cadets um, who are at a, a military academy. And they, they love it dearly, and it's sort of inextricable from their identity, but it's going to be shut down and bulldozed to make way for uh, a new row of condominiums. And these cadets, essentially mutiny, take over the campus and won't let the bulldozers in. And myself and Elaine, my co-authors, what if we set a story like that in space? Instead of the bulldozers coming in to make make way for a new row of condominiums, what if it's an alien attack? And these, these younger cadets that are on the ship they feel like they're in the hands of uh, some incompetent adults, and if they don't take matters into their own hands, if they don't mutiny, if they don't take over the ship, they're all going to die. And that's really where the story starts. But then from there, it takes a twist that they never sort never could have seen coming, and sort uh, goes more into sort of lost territory, a little bit more mind bent.
1: That sounds super interesting. But <laughs> as a matter of fact, I always thought I, when I read that name of your book, I, I was like, that would be a great Starship class, devastation <laughs> class. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, but it's and,
2: based on a, it's based on a class of ship from the eighteen hundreds.
1: Well, yeah. like a, like an, um, an old wooden warship.
2: Yes, indeed. Cool. And,
0: and tell us a little bit about that kind of connective DNA with Star Trek, uh, you know, b- between Devastation Class and Star Trek.
2: And the thing that, you know, that um, we talked about earlier about Star Trek having an order to it and a hierarchy. And there's also, they, they operate like a team, almost like a the sports team, right? And we had a, a captain and they have different players in the team who occupy different roles. And it's always, So interesting to play with that dynamic. And there's a lot of different story elements that you could wrap around the hierarchy where people are there on the ship for a specific purpose and they interact with each other in a certain way. And we wanted to take that sort of hierarchy and then put it into a story where instead of it being legendary icons of Starfleet like Picard and Kirk, kids who have no idea what they're doing. They really have no idea what they're doing. They're well-trained. They're elite in the sense that they have all the best training for someone their age but they're 17 and 18 years old and when we first started writing the books we we would get notes from our from our editors where they would say well i don't understand why this character it's, it's a really stupid decision and we go of course it's a stupid. that's intentional they're kids kids make the <laughs> and you know wouldn't it be interesting if there was a star trek series where there were young you know it, there is the I mean, of course there's lower decks but where you, you were following younger characters for an extended period of time and you were seeing them make that, those mistakes. You were seeing them become who they are, sort of where you see Picard in Tapestry, right?
1: Well, like Savick and Wrath
2: of Khan. Exactly. Uh, uh-huh. right? yeah. exactly. And so that, that connective tissue always pro- propelled us. It was always an inspiration.
0: I I was really impressed that you have an educator's guide to go along with the book. So with, with the full intention that this could be discussed in a classroom, and you know, one of the things that we always look for in uh, Mission Log when we're analyzing episodes of Star Trek is we're looking for morals, meanings, messages. Like, what what are those takeaway ideas from an episode or from a, a storyline or series as a whole that that inspires us or we think the writers are trying to get across. So I I kind of pose it to you both ways with devastation class and with star Trek. And you've talked about your interest in that hierarchy and that structure, but are are there, are there ideas there that go beyond that? I mean, I I think adherence to principle is a great one, but I'm curious what else inspires you there. Right.
2: As it, as it pertains to devastation class, there certainly is a message there. We didn't want to be too pedantic about it or on the nose about it. We wanted mm-hmm. it to be um, page Turner. We wanted it to ultimately be a big popcorn movie one day or a TV series. Um, but that message was, when you look at the world around us today, almost all the decisions are being made are being made by people like Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, right, to, to, to be bipartisan, right? Mm-hmm. They're both men, right? And they are the caretakers of, the, of our future and the millennials' future and Gen Z's future? And do they really know what's best for us? Are they best situated to make decisions that will put us in the best position to survive and thrive? And so in, recent, in the last year, you saw when people took to the streets, the younger generations taking matters into their own hands and sometimes even having to break rules in order to do what they thought was necessary. What they thought was right, what they thought was required in order to create a better world. Mm-hmm. And so we took that and we poured it into a sci fi space opera with these young characters making decisions that they feel like they have to make in order to survive, even if they're breaking the rules, even if they're breaking the law, even if it could mean their careers are worse or even their lives.
1: The uh, double or triple entendre of the title is, it's just, there's so many ideas swirling around in my head. (laughs) You know, it's almost as if like Kirk and Spock, you know, from 2009, they just went a different way, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Or a more extremist way because they believed what they were doing was right. You know, there is a certain zealotry when it comes to a class of students that all band together to go out and do something that they believe is right. And I think that,
2: so when's this coming out? (laughs) (laughs) The book's out. Um, And the other thing is there. They're scared out of their minds, you know, like they're not, you know, what, you know, to sort of split genres for a second, what do we all love about the original Die Hard? John McClane was very human. He was terrified. I mean, he was, he was Mm -hmm. badass, but he was scared, right? And he was human. And you're like, is this guy really going to survive? And he felt like us. And we wanted these characters who are making these extreme choices to not be so bold or blind that they they're 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 short of success they they're pretty sure they're gonna die yet they do it anyway
0: right there's one last thing that i have to ask you about with um devastation class uh as the resident gourmand of mission log i love the descriptions of the prms this is a great conceit in the book it's not really a replicator. It's, it's sort of a food synthesizer, but you took it a step further. And this is what I always wanted out of a description of a Star Trek replicator, which is, uh, okay, Deanna Troy goes up to the replicator in uh, 10 Ford and says, I want a chocolate sundae. But the replicator is smart enough to make something that is nutritionally sound. It just looks and tastes like the best chocolate sundae she's ever had. <laughs> so yes. you attempted that in devastation class, although to varying degrees of success. <laughs> it so- yes. sounds like some of it sucks. Some of it's really good. T- tell the, us about but,
2: that. But the, We'll take it a step further in that. It's not just that whatever they're ordering is nutritious. Mm-hmm. The, the formulation of it is specific to their physiology's needs. So, The pizza that one character would order might taste exactly the same as a piece of pizza the other character would order another character would order but they would have a different nutritional density because they would know that character a needs certain nutrients that character b doesn't and vice versa but it sort of tastes like crappy but it's a
0: brilliant idea it's totally brilliant that that's what i want uh that's what i want to think of the replicator is doing sizes you up goes "Eh, you know what you need more uh vitamin b and zinc in your diet so here your steak will have that we'll (laughs) never get o'brien off of these
1: meals ready to eat uh, off There's, the field rations? Happens.
0: Yeah, off the field rations. love them. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Glenn, hey, thank you so much. Where where can people follow you and get more information about your projects? Uh, obviously, Netflix, uh, they need to look up Challenger and they can look up dogs. Um, where else can they find you and what should they be looking for?
2: They probably shouldn't give out my address, right? Okay. So, um, <laughs> I mean, not your home address, you know. <laughs> I'm a I, I bad joke, even though I'm not a dad. Um, the the two easiest places to find me would be Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's really easy. It's at Zipper Z I P P E R, and on Instagram, it is at Glen Zipper with one N.
0: I'm just really impressed you got at Zipper because it seems like Big Zipper would be all over you. You probably just sit
2: it you're squatting on that. I can't. I can't. Well, it actually is a long story that we don't have time to tell. But I will tell you, I got help, <laughs> none other than Alex Winter. Bill from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, who we sure. collaborate in a lot of documentaries, he helped me figure that
0: out. Oh wow, that's awesome! Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And um, again, everybody, go check out Glenn's work. Uh, you will not be disappointed in the least. And Glenn, you. you have family now. You have a Star Trek family to talk to. Yeah,
2: I'm excited. I hope we can do this uh, again.
0: Absolutely. Hey, we'll do it virtually, and then I think you got to join us at a convention sometime, and uh, we'll we'll do this in person. All right? I can do it. All right, guys. Excellent. Thanks. Take Excellent. care. Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live is by the inscrutable Earl Green. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash mission log. Thanks to everyone who joined us live or later. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We look forward to talking with you next week.